CrowdStrike stops breaches. These days, critical work isn't done from the protection of a corporate network. It happens at cafes, back offices, and at home. New ways of working mean new attacks. New attacks require new defenses. CrowdStrike stops breaches so you can do what you do best. CrowdStrike, we stop so you can go. CrowdStrike is offering Security Weekly listeners 15 days free access to its platform. See how it works at securityweekly.com forward slash CrowdStrike. Can we continue to function without facts? Cybercriminals exploit the absence of facts, harming organizations through the easiest point of entry, email. No company should claim they can stop all phishing attacks. It's about having all the facts in seconds and reducing the time it takes to respond. It's minutes versus hours and the difference between a security incident and a breach. Greathorn, see through the dark. To learn more, go to securityweekly.com forward slash greathorn. Data protection is a top priority with today's work from home workforce. However, current data loss prevention tools inadequately protect data in cloud or SaaS offerings from insider threats. Secure Circle automatically protects data as it leaves SaaS services such as GitHub, AWS, and Salesforce. The protection is transparent to users and works with any application to persistently protect data, even source code. Secure your data with Secure Circle Zero Trust Data Protection. Begin your 30-day free trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash secure circle. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Join Amit Barakat, the co-founder and CEO of Perimeter81, and myself for a technical deep dive into the problems inherent in legacy VPN technology. We will explore solutions for the modern workforce and how momentum towards perimeterless architecture is helping redefine the future of cybersecurity. Register now by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash perimeter81. This segment is sponsored by Kenna Security. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Kenna Security. Here with us today from Kenna Security is Ed Bellis, the co-founder and CTO. Uh, Ed Bellis is a security industry veteran and expert and known in the security circles as the father of risk-based vulnerability management. <laughs> Did you come up with that all by yourself, Ed? Or did you have someone I else? I promise you I had nothing, in fact, <laughs> nothing to do with that. <laughs> But uh, it's kind of true. I, I mean, look, I've, Ed, you and I have known each other since, what, 2009, I think, when you were a customer at Qualys way back in the day right. when you started not long after that, uh, was it Risk.io was the original yeah, name yeah. right before it was yes. kind of security. So, I mean, look, Ed, you were really early into this market. That's that's fair. Although, let's let's be clear. There's a little bit of hype around that title. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ed, it says you founded Kenna Security to deliver a data-driven risk-based approach to remediation uh, that we'll talk about today. What's interesting is I, I don't want to say I knocked, but I definitely questioned your name change. And I have to say coming out of it now, another, I, I also knocked uh, Richard when he said IDS was dead. Turns out he was right. Turns out you were right, too, because I think there's too many companies with the name risk in them. And I think you've done a great job solidifying uh, your brand. So Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, and that was kind of the requirement. Now, we didn't necessarily completely uh, change our name, I'll say, by choice. Uh, but when we did, one of the requirements was, hey, we want to be far field. I want to not walk the show floor of RSA and be confused with every other vendor that's out there. So yep. stay away from risk, stay away from threats, stay away from a lot of red and black colors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had to change our name. We kept the red and black colors, though. So that's, that's some, someday we'll compare notes over beers. Um, so 
Ed, you've done some studies recently. Uh, so you've completed one. You completed five, actually, and you're working on a sixth one. If you could kind of set up the uh, labs and research that you're doing around these various topics, uh, because I think there's a lot of interesting data points to dig into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks, Paul. Um, so we have been publishing a series of joint research reports with the Scientia Institute. Uh, so if you're not familiar with those guys, Wade Baker, Jay Jacobs, uh, Ben Edwards, uh, Dave Saversky, uh, effectively a lot of the former uh, Verizon DBIR folks have went off and, and formed their own research firm. Oh, that's where uh, I knew Wade from because I've interviewed Wade on the, the DBR. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of the godfather of the DBIR. Right. Yes. <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. Um, yeah. So we've been working with these guys for a number of uh, years now, really. Um, and we've published, to your point, five different volumes of this uh, prioritization to prediction research report, focusing on different areas, obviously, within the vulnerability management space. Uh, the first couple volumes were, um, in fact, the first volume was very much around uh, what I would consider almost like the the academic view of, of vulnerability management in the sense that we're looking at the, the definitional level. So CVEs and what's in the National Vulnerability Database and how that compares to exploits in the wild and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we started with volume two to start to take some of the more real world data, started to consume information from our, our customer base, right? Across roughly about 450 different enterprises to see how they were doing in various forms. We started to introduce uh, through volumes three, uh, the concept of remediation uh, performance metrics, right? And how that differs, differs from risk. And we can talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit. Um, and then ultimately uh, with the most recent report, volume five, uh, which we released earlier this year, it was more about comparing some of how the vendors themselves were doing, uh, right? And how easy or difficult they were making it for their customers to perform remediation, to reduce risk, to to uh, kind of take a, a better approach to vulnerability management, and and we can dive into a, a few of the things that we we found there. Uh, but uh, needless to say, we're heads down right now, actually working on volume six, which is starting to turn up some interesting facts and stats as well. Ed, I want to dig into some points on volume five because it takes me back to both when I was a defender and working in vulnerability management. And the question that sometimes is posed is, do we just fix things because we know we can do it very fast, very efficiently, and at a large volume? Or some of the metrics that you measure in there, but you know, all the other factors aside, and there are many, as you well know, uh, if we can do it really, really fast, really good, and, and a lot of the time, do we just do that? Like, how does that factor into your prioritization? We we absolutely do, and and I think uh, a large tribute I would say goes to Microsoft. You guys were talking about Microsoft mm -hmm. earlier. One of the things that they've done very well for their customers is made it a lot easier to just patch and remediate vulnerabilities. Right. So yep. while unfor the the uh, the unfortunate side of it is they kind of had to do that out of necessity because of the volume to. of vulnerabilities <laughs> and, that they they are and, actually introducing. In 2003, to 2004, they certainly had some really good reasons to do that, right? <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. And it's and it's even we see it even today. I mean, in sure. terms of the absolute uh, volume of vulnerabilities that are introduced on a month-to-month -month basis uh, within a customer environment, Microsoft still leads the pact, right? The, the vulnerability density on Microsoft platforms is much higher than others. Now, some of it is uh, historical. Some of it is 
the fact that they are a general purpose computing platform, right? Which in itself makes it difficult because it's not only Microsoft vulnerabilities you're talking about. It's all of the applications that are running on these right. multi-purpose machines. Sometimes it's, start line, to get, it's lines of code. I mean, they're just yeah, yeah. more lines of code than anyone else. It's it's a huge, complex uh, set of uh, products that that they're they're managing, and then on top of that, all of the 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 software that's running on top of them. So, but they, I mean, to their credit, right? The the remediation velocity, and we measure really four uh, distinct performance metrics, right? There's um, uh, coverage and efficiency velocity and capacity so coverage you can think of it and we think of it in terms of risk obviously being in in the in the risk-based vulnerability management game um if i have 100 high risk and in this case when when we're doing the research with scientia high risk means vulnerabilities that are either have some sort of uh, weaponized exploit for them or we're seeing exploitations in the wild for both if you have 100 high risk vulnerabilities how many of those did you fix? So if I fixed 80 out of 100, then I've got an 80% coverage. Uh, efficiency is the opposite of that. Uh, think of it as I went out and I fixed 100 vulnerabilities. How many of those were actually high risk, right? So how much of my effort really counted towards banging down that, that risk level? Um, velocity is just that. It's how quickly uh, am I remediating vulnerabilities? And one of the things that was really cool that we kind of introduced, I think it was a volume three of the series of reports around velocity is looking at it through uh, a different lens. Instead of typically you'd see in this industry, a lot of people are looking at things like mean time to remediate, which is mm -hmm. great. Uh, one, it's averages. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean a ton, uh, but also typically mean time to remediate is only looking at things that you actually remediate. Right. So you're not looking at all the stuff that you just didn't address at all. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at survival curves. Right. So if I had one any given vulnerability across my environment, how quickly do I eradicate that vulnerability until it completely goes away? Right. And then, you know, I think Qualys has talked about the half life of vulnerabilities in the past, and that's definitely in there as well. But ultimately, what you want to measure is that area under the curve or how quickly does that drop off? And, uh, and get eradicated out of my environment. Now, of course, we find that uh, in any sizable environment, the answer is never. <laughs> yeah, because they come back, but, right? And, yeah. and it's a time, I think we talked about in comparison to how we measure some of our podcast statistics, and you have to measure it on a time series. Mm -hmm. And vulnerabilities mm -hmm. are the same way. Like it comes out, there's a lot of activity, and then there's kind of this trailing off. And we measure our podcast very similarly, and we realize that it's really a time series. I think vulnerabilities have to be measured in a very similar manner. You're absolutely right. You can't just look at any point in time. Um, and that goes to, uh, you know, the, also kind of the differences between risk, which you should look at risk in terms of a time series as well as my risk going up or down. Right. But then this, these performance metrics, which are not necessarily uh, risk feeds into those performance metrics. But mm -hmm. really what you're looking at is, is how per, how well is your team doing at remediation, which can be different. Right. I mean, my risk could jump up tomorrow because a lot of uh, exploitation events are, are starting to, yeah. to pop up. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not the fault of your team now mm -hmm. your team needs to be able to respond to that but that's not the performance is different than risk yep there's a lot of interesting things to measure the various teams and that's a common question that we get is how do i measure the effectiveness of my various teams my various teams for managing the active directory infrastructure versus our web applications versus whatever else how do i measure the effectiveness of it the time series plays into it are there other tips you have for our listeners ed 
as to some of the best ways to measure the effectiveness of your remediation programs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, and I was getting into it, and and I guess the one metric that I didn't talk about uh, was capacity, mm-hmm. uh, which is another thing to look at, which is effectively how how many vulnerabilities, and and really you want you still want to feed risk into all of this, right? So we talked about coverage and efficiency, and that that's natural play into risk. Uh, obviously, when I'm looking at velocity, I want to look at the veloc- the remediation velocity of high-risk vulns versus low-risk vulns. Also, you talked about it earlier on your segment, but it's not just about the vulnerability. It's also about the asset that that vulnerability sits on. Mm-hmm. How important is that asset? What business processes are associated with it? How is it you know, interconnected within my own environment? Those all go into play there. But there's also this, this notion of capacity. Uh, for teams and how how many high risk vulns can my team actually remediate in any given time frame, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, however you prefer to measure it. And really what you're looking for there is, am I getting ahead or am I falling behind or am I treading water uh, in terms of high risk? Meaning, uh, am I actually closing out more than I'm opening in a given time frame or the other way around? Am I introducing right. security debt or am I reducing security debt? Yeah, I was going to say, what's your debt? Yep. I, I yep. wanted to That's ask, Ed, something I've been thinking about based on some previous segments that, that we've done talking about prioritization is the age of a vulnerability. How does that factor in? Because I think it's somewhat subjective in, in based on your environment, based on uh, you know a lot of different factors, but... You, do you patch things that are, are newer or you patch things that are older? I think you can make a case for both conceivably, which is bad, right? We want to be less subjective about this yeah. and more like, you know, just patch based on a formula and less than I feel like we should patch older things uh, as a higher priority over newer things. I, I think that feels good to us from, from an engineering perspective because mm-hmm. I want to, you know, I want to continuously be updating my environment because it makes, let's be honest, by getting into some sort of regular patching cycle, that makes future patching easier, right? right. If I yes. skip patching for Great. a long period of time, the the, the chances I'm going to break something in the future yep. when I do ultimately patch that uh, go up, right? So in that sense, I would say it's more operational risk than security risk. Uh, but there is security risk. And I think security risk is really what you have to consider here, right? So when when I'm, at least when I'm looking at it through that security lens, I want to remediate the thing that's most likely to happen to me or have the biggest impact or the combination thereof, right? Mm-hmm. And if I have a vulnerability that's been open for three months and something gets opened yesterday, but that the chance of that thing that opened yesterday is much higher in terms of either exploitation or big impact to my environment, Mm. I want to jump on that first because um, right. I want I, I want to manage the risk as opposed to uh, the age. Now, there is a very valid point, though. Age represents operational risk. Right. And there's patching, which also introduces operational risk, which is different. And a lot of times security people look at it through the security lens and the ops team is going, hey, the chance of something going down by me pushing out this patch could go up. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's there is that sort of risk that you have to keep in uh, mind as well. Matt, I'm sorry I'm monopolizing the interview. I know you've, you've got a <laughs> lot of thoughts on this topic, obviously, because you and I have had several conversations about this topic over the years. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think his answer on age is is right. It's mm-hmm. based on risk, right? I don't care how old or new it is. Uh, what I care about is, is it going to create impact in my environment? 
I want to go back to capacity for a second because I think capacity gets interesting. There's been a long debate about aspects of how do you improve capacity for patching? You know, how much does prioritization and automated patching and other activities help improve capacity? And so I'm curious, I don't know if you measure it specifically, but are we seeing improvements in capacity, Ed? Are, are there innovations happening that are allowing us to increase our patching capacity to resolve vulnerabilities? Or are we still pretty kind of like status quo? No, actually, that is one. Of, so we measure those four things on an annual basis. And internally, we kind of refer to them as the, the state of the union of, of vulnerability metrics in terms of performance. Um, and capacity specifically, we have seen significant improvements uh in fact if you look at the the uh the p2p reports right from volume five versus i think it was volume two or three um we almost flipped that chart right so meaning uh, if you're looking at the charts there's uh the number of folks that are falling behind or introducing more debt than they're remediating and the other half of it is the the people that are getting ahead and actually uh, paying down debt and then in the middle there's kind of a slice that are treading water the, the number of folks that were falling behind now are, you know, so I think roughly well over a half, maybe even close to two thirds are either treading water or getting ahead now versus it used to be the other way around just a year before. Now, caveat is bias in the data set and that these are all kind of customers, right? So they're going to be focused a lot on on high risk and, and, and paying that down. We did see two things that obviously um affect capacity one is effectively what we do which is the prioritization angle right if i'm narrowing down the set of things i need to focus on in terms of risk then my ability to pay that 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 down uh goes up but then I, you you talked about it right the automated patch management that's that's huge and why we see in volume five the net capacity of like the microsoft platform far exceeds when we looked at things like Network devices, was that one yeah. of the, that's a weak area, right? Yeah, really weak area. Now, to be fair, they also introduce a minuscule number of vulnerabilities compared to sure. uh, the, the general computing platforms. Uh, but it, and, and the, not only the capacity, the velocity uh, was massively different, right? We would see on average, people would fix uh, those network computing devices or the half-life would be somewhere around a year or longer versus Microsoft, which was much, much faster. Also, I mean, in networking, you have Cisco Works, which is the most ironic name for a product out there, so we won't fault people for that either. <laughs> <laughs> that's my opinion. That's not what Ed's saying. That's my opinion. <laughs> I'll just nod and smile. Nod and smile. <laughs> so, I mean, the good news is we're actually improving. We are getting to levels of automation in, mm -hmm. this, er in, in this area, which means we are reducing our overall potential risk profiles and postures across the organizations because automation is helping us get there. I mean, we, look, I, you know, I've worked for two of the three major players in the space. This was always kind of the nirvana. There are very few willing to go there. Um, and so you've seen other solutions come in. But if you build your vulnerability management program end to end, thinking about aspects of automation, remediation and patching in mind, that means you can achieve good outcomes.
Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in, in, I think it was volume three or four of the report, we looked at some of the vendors and, and, and some of the velocity around uh, specific ones, Microsoft, which we've, you know, talked about a lot in terms of how, how quickly people are uh, eradicating vulnerabilities there. Google was obviously another one. Uh, an auto update means a lot there. I guess the, the one thing that I found a little bit humorous is that Microsoft was slightly faster than Google. And when I, we look back at all of the Google vulnerabilities, I mean, the vast majority of them were Chrome vulnerabilities mm. that we saw, uh, which meant that people were actually pushing out patches through things like SSCM faster than they were restarting their browser. Right. Huh. Interesting. Volume six, Ed, what can we expect in volume six? Yeah, great question. So this one, what we're doing is we're taking a deeper dive specifically on exploited vulnerabilities, whether it be uh, vulnerabilities that have weaponized exploits, either proof of concept or, or more point click and shoot type uh, exploits, but also those that are being exploited in the wild. And we're taking a deep dive into timelines, right? So you look at this vulnerability, when was it published by, uh, when was the patch issued by the vendor? When did we first see any sort of weaponized exploit for it? When did we start to see exploits in the wild for it? When did we start to see it show up in vulnerability scanning results uh, from our customers? How quickly did they remediate it? And then where are all of the gaps, right? And how could we reduce some of the gaps for the defenders, right? Whether it be on the vendor side or on the practitioner side, you know, where, where are those areas of focus where we can say, hey, in this particular type of vulnerability, we're seeing exploits come out very quickly. In fact, much quicker, much quicker than somebody is typically patching. Where can we make improvements there versus other ways around where there might be uh, you know, uh, long-lived exploits that, that come out uh, well after patches and patches are, are actually pushed out. Now, um, Ed, is this research specific to there is an actual living exploit versus a vulnerability which may have a very high severity rating, but it doesn't require an exploit? Authentication that, bypass, just as an example. It's exploitable, but I don't necessarily need an, you know code to exploit that. It's an authentication bypass, right? That's right. That's right. And this is very much focused on on the former, not the latter. Right. We're not looking we're, we're looking at things that are uh, not just exploitable, but there is some sort of exploit for or you can detect an exploit for. Yeah. Right? OK. So that's that's kind of the key there. So some sort of signature as well. Yeah, because I would think if I don't need an exploit, that would automatically trigger a much higher severity because there is no exploit required, essentially, right? Yeah, and there's some bias in the, in the data there and the fact that there's some vulnerabilities that where you can't necessarily detect an exploit. Mm -hmm. So us being able to, um, you, you know, tie that to anything goes to nil, right? I, I don't have the ability to tell you this is being exploited in the mm -hmm. wild because it's not detectable. Right, right. We should still give a higher priority to vulnerabilities that have exploits out there. There's some debate on that usually, but that's it's I, still a thing, right? I, I think it's a, a generally good rule of thumb. That's not, it's not like you were talking about earlier in the segment. Mm -hmm. It's not the only factor when you prioritize a vulnerability, but it's certainly a factor and it's a pretty big factor. Matt. Yeah. When you lay out your timelines, are you taking into account the the vulnerability to disclosure timeline as well? Because here's what we see, right? Vulnerabilities identified 
disclosed to a vendor, goes through a period, doesn't become publicly announced until later. Are you taking some of that vulnerability disclosure timeline into an account? Because I'm curious, how big is sometimes that gap from the time Mm -hmm. a vulnerability is known and it's patched and available and announced to the public? Because that's a gap window. Are you trying to analyze that in this phase as well? Yes, with caveats. So that data is not always available. When it is available, we definitely include that as part of the timeline. It's also interesting because the number of CNAs over the last couple of years has just exponentially grown. So the number of people who can actually publish uh, and create a CVE now are is massive, right? And we've we've seen that in the historical graphs of oh my God, there's way more CVEs uh, last year than there was the year before. Um, that's just because more people are actually publishing CVEs and, and now you have the advent of folks like GitHub and things like that, that are scanning and, and creating CVEs as well. So there's, there's a lot more data out there, uh, including some of, some of the disclosure data. Yeah. It's just a gap I see is you, you see these public announcements. You're like, this thing's been around for like 90 days before they got to patching it. Right. That that's an, that's a potential exploit window. If there is a known exploit available for it. So I was was curious because I think it would give us some really interesting data on how well is vulnerability disclosure programs doing in the industry, right? Are they helping or are they not helping? Yep. Yep. For sure. And and we do see there are a number of them where you actually see the the exploit being published before the CVE is published, which Mm -hmm. is uh, obviously not not good for practitioners. Right. Right. Ed. Any closing thoughts for our audience uh, timeline for volume six, when we can expect that? For yeah, so we are uh, heads down in that now. We'll probably go into through our usual QA cycles uh, starting next week and expect to publish that by certainly by mid-November. So we're about three weeks out. You can go to kennasecurity.com where we'll hang that off of there, but also uh, kennaresearch.com is where we uh, have a lot of our research reports as well. Fantastic. Our listeners can also visit securityweekly.com forward slash Canna Security. We archive all of the segments uh, with our sponsors there individually. So, Ed, thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.